Welcome to the Painter's Dialectic Podcast. I am your host, Josh Green, a painter and art educator living in New York City. And today, moral philosopher Dylan Ahn and I will be doing a new episode in our What is Truth series, which casually and conversationally explores the field of epistemology, which is the study of truth. The focus of today's episode will be the concept of certainty. What does it mean to be certain? Can we be certain of anything? How certain can we really be? These are very, very important ideas that we will be exploring in today's dialogue. Don't just listen to the podcast, participate in it. Like, subscribe, share our content, leave comments. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can go to the Painter's Dialectic on Patreon and subscribe. You can also support us through Spotify. If you'd like to take lessons with me, you can go to greenatelier.art and sign up for lessons. If you'd like to see what all I'm doing, you can go to joshgreenart.com. And if you'd like to see our Instagram page, the podcast has one, The Painter's Dialectic. You can see mine, Josh Green Artist. And let's get to the show. Dylan, it's good to see you. I'm assuming you're still abroad. It looks like you're abroad. I'm I'm home in Hong Kong. Yeah. <laughs> Are you home in Hong Kong? Okay. Yeah. Okay. And um, everything's going well. Yeah. How about you? Everything's going good. Everything's going good. I'm gonna try to sound like I got it together this morning. <laughs> <laughs> but. Why not? Why not talk about in the morning certainty, the philosophy mm. of certainty? I think it's a very important idea. You do well, but I did write something for this. Certainty is an epistemic property of beliefs. The quality of certainty about one's beliefs can be psychological or epistemic. To be psychologically certain, of a belief is a state of mind rather than an objective measure of knowledge. For example, instead of picking on a a deist, I'm going to pick on an atheist. For example, an atheist believes with certainty that God does not exist. Their belief is based on how convinced they are of the validity or accuracy of the knowledge that God doesn't exist rather than its actual validity or accuracy. Psychological certainty, like Thales, the uh, the ancient Greek philosopher, whose belief that the world floated on the sea and that it was able to float because it has the essential quality of wood, can be wrong while the believer is certain of it. Right? So epistemic certainty is when a belief holds the highest achievable epistemic status. Okay? A belief with epistemic certainty is justified through reason and evidence to a high degree. For example, the speed of light has remained constant in all experiments, so it holds the status of epistemic certainty. Another example is while on the earth, the force of gravity remains constant and measurable. It is epistemically certain that anything that falls on Earth will express falling according to the laws of gravity. The speed of light and the force of gravity are certain in a different way than atheist non-belief. Right? The atheist cannot conduct an experiment or measure in any way the non-existence of God. The inability of this belief to be tested in any way makes it psychologically certain rather than epistemic. An epistemic belief can also be psychologically held if the believer is unaware of its epistemic status. In many cases, certainty about a particular knowledge is a state of mind rather than an objective measure. 
our certainty shows us how convinced we are of that knowledge rather than its validity. We can be certain of something and be wrong without knowing it. Our beliefs can be rational and justified through evidence or can be irrational by being based on our intuition and faith. Someone's belief may be irrational without them knowing. They believe they have researched their belief well, but the evidence they selected was to support the pre-existing belief rather than challenge it. This is known as rationalization or confirmation bias. Rationalization is a mental defense used to justify difficult or unacceptable feelings with seemingly logical explanations. Its function is to unconsciously protect the ego from discomfort. Creating a rationale can be a useful coping strategy. Rationalization is harmful if it is frequently used to avoid growth or deny important realities. Rationalization is often used to avoid contradictions. For example, I believe I'm a good person. Later that day, an old lady is placing her wallet back into her purse. A $20 bill falls out from her purse onto the sidewalk without her noticing. I pick up the bill and I put it in my pocket with no intention of telling her to rationalize his action which is conflicted with my belief that I'm a good person. I think, well, she had a Louis Vuitton purse and she seems affluent. I'm not rich. I could really use the money. For her, this will be a minor annoyance. But for me, I can afford lunch now. So that's rationalization. There are two types of rationalization, sour grapes and sweet lemons. This idea comes from Aesop's fable, the fox and the grapes, in which a fox leaps towards the grapevine high in the air. The grapes are out of reach, so he rationalizes, I am sure the grapes are sour. Conversely, you can rationalize that a bad situation is good, sweet lemons. Many of us don't consciously recognize that we are making excuses for our or others' behavior. One way of overcoming it is not to view challenging beliefs as harmful to one's identity. We are all capable of being irrational. A confirmation bias is a bias that favors information that confirms your previously existing beliefs. For example, I believe that opposing political party is full of idiots. I hear this one all the time. <laughs> Anytime someone of the opposing party to something idiotic, a great importance will be placed on this event as evidence supporting the bias. I may even seek proof to further back this bias. This bias of mine will affect how I gather information and influence how I interpret and recall information as the bias progresses and remains unchallenged. The proof will continue to reinforce my attitude Key features of confirmation bias are seeking information that confirms a pre-existing belief, looking for evidence to confirm a belief rather than considering all the evidence available, relying on stereotypes or biases when assessing information, selectively remembering information that supports the belief and discounting information that doesn't have a strong emotional reaction to information that confirms the belief, while remaining unaffected by information that doesn't. So what if I'm a person who holds a rational belief of epistemic kind? I still must caution myself not to believe with absolute certainty because it can close my mind and take away from my objectivity. For example, if you, dear listener, wanted certainty that I am wearing shoes on my feet, how could you prove it? Unless you're here next to me as I write, you cannot prove with any certainty that this statement, I am wearing shoes, is true. Maybe you have secretly installed cameras in my room that live streams video to your phone. Maybe before I put my shoes on, you poured super glue into them so that they can't be removed. Maybe you're hiding under my bed watching me. Who knows? 
Besides these extreme measures, as far as I can perceive, I am writing this alone. Only I can know with certainty, because I can see and feel the shoes. Whether you believe me or not is a matter of good faith. How is this example any different from the knowledge given to us by researchers? Right? There is a great deal of faith involved on the layperson's part in accepting these claims of researchers. Or how can a layperson verify the certainty of their claims? The layperson cannot spontaneously receive an elaborate education of the specialist and obtain access to facilities to review their work. The layperson must then believe, based on good faith, of the quality of the research being done. If I am a person who holds rational beliefs of the epistemic kind, isn't it contradictory of me to believe such beliefs as a lay person, for those beliefs could only come from notable specialists leading their field of research. Couldn't this good faith be seen as rationalization? It then comes down to what research is most rational to trust. All right, well, that was a lot, but I think that covered all the, uh, the bases. And I think where I ended about questioning the research and the science that you get, it's very relevant today, kind of the contradiction that came out of that. But I think, um, I think that's where we should end, but we should just talk about beliefs in general to start because I think 99% of what we think is and what we believe is just belief. It's not actual knowledge. Mm -hmm. Do you agree with that? Yeah. I mean, there is definitely, it has been established that knowledge is no longer the sort of thing that we mean when we think of absolute objective certainty of how the things actually are in the world. Modern attempts in epistemology has has often tried to redefine knowledge as something plus something plus belief. So, for instance, the classic iteration would be it is a true belief or it's a justified true belief and people add things and take away things according to that sort of equation. But it's generally, generally been accepted that knowledge no longer reflects how the world actually is because we've come to realize it's actually very difficult to be absolutely certain about this is exactly how the way things are. Uh, as you've mentioned, we can only be practically speaking, psychologically, all things being equal, be certain enough to take action for practical purposes that, okay, I have to believe this or I'm compelled psychologically to accept this as truth to me in order to live my life. So for a lot of people, it would be accepting things like your parents are your actual parents, right? There's actually, there's no way to be completely uh, sure <laughs> unless you go to, and you know, you can do DNA testing, but then you have to have faith in the DNA tests themselves, right? But you take sort of the common sense practical approach and you say, okay, for all, all practical purposes, for all psychological purposes, that this is good enough. This is what I would consider to be a certain belief. You mentioned a very good distinction between what is rational and what is sort of evidence-based justification. So in epistemology, there is a difference. And we often point out that what is rational isn't always the best sort of thing to hold. In sort of conversations in epistemology, there's often note of certain cases called Gettier cases. And there was a particular person who loved coming out with these cases to show that even if you have you can have a true belief, but it's not necessarily justified, even though it is rational. So justification and rationality may not go hand in hand. For instance, you pass by sort of a farm and you see sort of a lot of cows over and over again. And unbeknownst to you, there happens to be sort of a um, hundred meters down the road to be a cardboard cutout of a cow. And all evidence points to you that that cardboard cutout is a genuine, real cow. Right? You're justified in having that belief. You're rational in having that belief. And yet you could still be wrong. Right? And it shows that there's always going to be sort of some disparity between these two sort of concepts. There's always going to be a point where we have to accept that there's no way of ever really getting to what we would call ideal knowledge. We're always a step. We're always wanting to take away and add things to this justify true belief thing, but we never really get to a point where we're satisfied. 
Um, and the reason why this is a problem for justification rationality is because we don't like the fact that we may happen to stumble on true knowledge by chance. We like to think that, that we have some principled way of getting at truth. And sort of having that cardboard cutout example shows that there is no real principled way of ever achieving genuine truth with a capital T. It's always some leap of faith, always some bit of wishy-washiness that is in the way. And philosophers and scientists don't really like that idea. There's also the notion that you mentioned of uh, the atheistic claim that there is no God, for instance, is often difficult because it is difficult to have any any evidence or ha have any positive claim towards the non-existence of something. It's very easy to disprove the existence of something or to have very strong arguments against the existence of something, but to have an argument for the non-existence of something is not impossible because then you'd have a bunch of things that could possibly not or does exist. So Bertrand Russell famously had his uh, flying teapot in space, right? You can't <laughs> prove that it isn't there, right? but it would be ridiculous to genuinely give any weight to that sort of belief. It's true that there might be a really small probabilistic chance that there might genuinely be a flying teapot as it were uh, for this flying spaghetti monster, as it were for uh, perhaps the traditional depiction of what God is like, but there's no way of trying to sort of ascertain the truth or no way of attempting to do so. And so there's that notion of falsifiability and verifiability and that for practical purposes, this is not really an epistemological move. It's really a practical one. It's saying that there is no way that we could possibly as human beings entertain all of these notions of what could be all we could do is take what evidence is out there and work from that, right? We can have beliefs if we'd like, but it would be a huge waste of our mental capacity and our time to try and disprove the things that we don't have any means of verifying and falsifying, right? And so if we were to spend all this time on trying to disprove God, for instance, it would be just as much of a waste of time trying to disprove Thor or Poseidon, or we'll never get to the end of it. And so for all practical purposes, we have just, atheists have just sort of said that even though philosophically atheism doesn't really work logically, but for all practical and psychological purposes, people tend to identify as atheists when they really mean that it would be a waste of time to even entertain this notion that there might be a cause, <laughs> right? <laughs> so th those are like the two sort of things that I sort of thought of in sort of relation to this notion of certainty and belief and this notion of practical concerns when it comes to psychological notions of certainty. I'd like to sort of give you another sort of interesting case when it comes to this, and it's called the, the Newcomb paradox if people are interested in looking it up. And it's, again, one case in which the most rational means of thinking may not always give you the most practical outcome, right? empirically speaking and for all, uh, all other purposes. So imagine uh, a grandparent who's, who likes to play this game whenever you go to visit during Christmas. So she'll present you with two boxes, right? One of the boxes has $20 in it and the other box has $200 in it. And you're allowed to pick one box or two boxes. So if I present to you, and you're allowed to keep all the money inside those boxes. So imagine that your sole primary objective is to get as much money as possible. How many boxes would you take? <laughs> well, you pick the most boxes you can, right? You pick exactly, the two. Exactly, yeah. So that's the yeah. rational means of approaching this problem. Of course, right? Because if you take two, you'll definitely have 220. The grandmother sort of says, okay, let me change it up a little bit. So if, right, let's say she's a very good psychic and predictor of your behavior. And she knows that if you say that you'll pick two boxes, she'll put $20 bills in both of those boxes and you'll only get 40. <laughs> but <laughs> if she knows that you'll only pick one, she'll put $200 in both of those boxes. You definitely walk away with 200, mm. right? So if presented with that sort of slight tweak how many boxes will you still go for? 
bearing in mind that she will have already made her prediction and she would already chosen the amount of money to put in the boxes before mm. you ever get there. So what would you pick? Okay, well, I think to guarantee that you get money, you should take the two. Because if you try to get the maximum amount of money, right. it's a 50-50 chance that you get none. Is that, is that what you're looking for? Yeah, so of course the rational answer is, yeah, still take two boxes because right, if the amount of money inside the box is already determined, right, the grandmother has already made her choice. Me choosing one and me choosing two has no effect on the amount of money which is already inside the boxes. So of course I'll take two just on the off chance that she'll guess poorly and I can walk away mm -hmm. with 400. Mm -hmm. But let's say you do this for like 10 Christmases in a row and you've pick two boxes every time and you've been wrong every she's really good at this game she's never <laughs> she does this with all her 20 grandchildren and she's never wrong right she's okay. always accurate would you change your mind <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean if i want to have fun if i want to roll the dice you know yeah. why not <laughs> yeah. but i think the logical thing to do is just keep doing the certain thing, right? What are you taking the two boxes? <laughs> right. So this is what is known as a newcomb paradox, which is what is the rational choice to make may always may not always give you, and in this case will definitely land you the worst outcome. Right. By all <laughs> empirical sort of approaches to this, right? The empirical scientific choice would be to take the one box because you've shown the evidence has proven over and over again that taking the one box will get you more money, it'll give you $200, where taking two will only get you 40. But logic gives us a completely different answer. The assumption is, is that it's working from a place of logic where, well, the money's already determined, right? There's something that we don't understand about the wishy-washy nature of the psychic ability of one's grandmother that we don't quite <laughs> get, right? But if we were to know what's happening, and if we had, we were able to connect the logical dots, we would choose one but it's very difficult to get our minds around sort of this fundamental problem which is the linearity of time because in the back of our minds we know that once something is done it's done my choice that happens in the future of taking one or two boxes shouldn't have a causal effect on your grandmother placing the money in the boxes, which is happening in the past because mm. we know that cause and effect does not work that way and time does not work that way and we're certain about this. This sort of case was sort of introduced to me by a Cambridge professor that I can't unfortunately remember the name of. And he works on the notion of the linearity of time. And he thinks that actually there is no real sort of fundamental proof as to why time has to work in what direction, technically, right? There are many reasons why it practically moves one direction in, in terms of our experiences and our psychological and practical experiences of time. But there is actually no reason for us to cling to this idea that cause and effect has to work in that order. Effect and cause may be the other way around. This notion of certainty is actually very, very well embedded in places that we don't often take notice of. We often have to make a lot of practical assumption for our brains to work in our practical everyday lives. We'd like to think that we're sort of questioning, but if we unravel and we take a look at these sort of annoying cases, we realize that we have a lot of fundamental assumptions about how the world works. So that brings me to, I listened to a recent episode with you and Kenny and uh, talking about <laughs> sort of the universe and other things like that. And Kenny brought up something that I thought was a very rational assumption to make, which is that space is space. Now, he mentioned yeah. something to the point where space is space, yeah. there's space, and that is undeniable and unrefutable. Oh, that right? was very crazy. <laughs> and it's so common sense, it's so logical, such a rational position to take that it would be yeah. ridiculous to question that. And yet, empirically, we know this to be this concept to not hold up very, very well. In fact, Newton had this the same notion where he thought, well, there's space must be objective. He kind of imagined like there was a bucket of space and there was this space mm -hmm. stuff. And this was a sort of certain amount of space in the yeah. universe. Something, one of our observations really screwed this idea over when we realized that space was expanding. Uh -huh. And objective space and having a very, very sort of concrete notion of what space is and the amount of space there is simply does not hold up with the 
observation, with the empirical observation that everything is moving away from one another. <laughs> and what's even more annoying about this notion of moving away, that they're not moving away sort of yeah. normally, they're exponentially moving away. That means the further <laughs> things are, the faster they're moving away. <laughs> so that is something that sort of is really uncomfortable rationally, because we like to think everything yeah. in our lives are suspended in this, this notion. They work so well with this model of having a bucket of space. Like we have a bucket of water, yeah. the bucket of space, it is objective space. And yet science tells us that space and time are relative notions in the same yeah. way that the relativistic nature of time is also very uncomfortable. We don't like it that time does not have an objective taking sort of certain motion, that the passage of time depends on the individual experiencing it, on their properties, yeah. on their gravity, on their speed and, and their positions in space. And so there was a very interesting quote that I can't remember where I've heard it from, but sometimes truth is stranger than the strangest fiction. What is so obviously <laughs> rational and logical sometimes just doesn't hold up to the observations we make about the world. Something could be so, I mean, I agreed so much with Kenny's, how could you refute that there is just objective <laughs> space? It's so obvious. And yet we can, like we, we watch the stars moving away from us faster, the further away they are. And we can see the red and blue shifts. It's such an annoying thing um, that we have to deal with. And so it's true that there's a lot of possibilities of what things are, but practically speaking, we have to work from sort of somewhere. And it's definitely yeah. not the most philosophical and most epistemological thing to do, but it is the most practical thing to do. Right? Kenny mentioned something that there is, it's true that his model definitely encompasses or includes more interpretations of what the evidence is like. But we like to sort of, for practical reasons, go with something what we call Occam's razor, which is to use a more refined notion is that we like to take the version and the model that requires us to make the least amount of assumptions. So while it's perfectly true that Kenny's model does include a lot more interpretations, a lot more theory of what the reality might be like, but it also requires us to make a lot more assumptions in order to make those realities possible, right? So mm -hmm. if you'd like, epistemologically and philosophically speaking, both those models don't contradict any of the evidence. However, your model is much more slim -lined, right? As in, it is more tailor-fitted to the evidence, whereas his model is sort of more loose, right? It allows for more <laughs> loose interpretation. And both is fine, right? So what we would sort of call experimental physics, uh, your model, we would call sort of theoretical physics for Kenny. <laughs> We'd like to think about what might be possible, right? Or even go as far as to say metaphysics, right? We'd realize that the, a lot of the evidence isn't quite there yet, but it's still quite fun to imagine, right? Yeah. One day, maybe the evidence will catch up and we'll get there. But as far as we can tell, it's a long way away to suggest <laughs> those things, right? I think that is a really, really difficult sort of approach to certainty because it basically admits the fact that we don't know <laughs> about any <laughs> and it's very very yeah. difficult to navigate what might be the most practical approach to knowledge and trying to figure out okay what is the as you to discussed what is the most what is the best model to take right what is the best approach do we do go with an approach that accommodates for more points of view Right? Or do we go with the approach that takes less risks, so it, sort mm. of epistemologically speaking? Yeah. Um, has that sort of helped sort of <laughs> in trying to understand uh, Kenny's model? Both of, our, both of our models expressed our personalities. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the point of beliefs, right? Is that they're shaped by you. I recognize that ultimately i'm uncertain about everything and at first you know when i started thinking about what that actually means that was kind of crushing right that that um is very unsettling to be so uncertain and i think that's what keeps people in beliefs traps is the extreme uncomfort of the unknown of uncertainty but you can get to a lighthearted space about it, which I think 
I was trying to uh, to show, and I think Kenny definitely is too, is that you can be playful about it. You can be speculative. You can have fun. You can kind of stop being a, such a, I don't know, nice for to say that, a dick about all your beliefs, right? Stop being a dick yeah. and thinking you know everything, right? That whether God exists or doesn't exist, whether this science is right or that, right? Whether this political party is right or this one's right. Yeah. You don't actually know. And it's ultimately a choice. Yeah, I think being open-minded, having fun and understanding that instead of being crushed by uncertainty, you can be more of an artist. You can make creative decisions and you can change and you can be flexible. I think ultimately what we have is kind of a subjective science, the average person. Uh, and for me, the truth isn't as valuable as the good. If what I believe is very beneficial for me and everyone else, that's important. You have to remember that everyone else part, mm -hmm. that's probably a good way to be, right. right? Does it bring me peace? Does it bring me harmony with everything around me? That's good to believe for that time until you have something better. What do you think? Yeah, I, I completely agree. I mean, if obviously the assumption of the scientific world is that the closer we get to the truth or the closer model of, of how things work to correspond with the evidence that we have, must give us better outcomes, right? Mm -hmm. Because if we know what we're doing, right? If we understand and we base our beliefs on how things work, at least to us, right? Empirically mm -hmm. speaking, then we'll have a better way of navigating the world that we live in. And so the assumption is that, okay, if we have the closest means of understanding to the evidence we have, then it must mean that we have a better chance at living our lives. And so far that's, mm -hmm seems to be sort of the case but there's also a lot to be said about things that are good but not necessarily comply to some form of evidence for instance we are well versed in a phenomenon called the placebo effect for instance mm -hmm. right the belief in something genuinely does have good results despite the fact that it genuinely has no basis on you know any of the evidence right that that's the whole point and it shows mm -hmm. you that the power and the ability of psychology and the mind to make mm -hmm. things happen, despite the fact that it has no basis in the world for it to happen. Right? Yeah. And it shows that fundamentally we are psychological and subjective beings, but that subjectivity has an interaction with the physical world. If you believe mm -hmm. that you are going to get better, you will genuinely feel better physically, which is quite weird. And so a lot of the work uh, in neuroscience is exploring this position. How do we explain this weird gap and yet interaction between something so subjective and something so physical? Do we treat mm -hmm. the human as a psychophysical thing or do we just treat it as a purely physical thing when it clearly has an interaction? The second sort of notion is how we define the good and what is beneficial. And so mm -hmm. I remember one of sort of the striking qualities when I was looking into researching Buddhism is its method for critical examination. So there was one instance where a bunch of scholars visited the Buddha and they were asking him about a very, very practical question. They were saying like, you know, there's a lot of peoples in these cities, a lot of scholars, a lot of uh, well-learned individuals, a lot of preachers, they expound and glorify their own doctrines, right? But when it comes to other people's beliefs, they deprecate them, they revile them, they show contempt for them, they sort of disagree, they revile them. Uh, and so, but it leaves like the rest of us, right? If the scholars are like this, what are we like normal everyday people supposed to do with this? Right? They can't <laughs> come to an agreement. We're very uncertain, we're in doubt, we're unclear. And so they asked, the Buddha, so what do we do? Like, what, who out of these people are telling the truth and who is lying? The Buddha's approach is not to just say, whatever I say is the truth, nor does he say, okay, this person, this person, this person is telling the truth, and this person, this person is lying. His response was to say, oh, well, of course you are uncertain, of course you're in doubt. Of course, when there are good reasons uh, for doubt, uncertainty is born, right? So mm. he suggests that the approach that you should go by is to don't go by reports, don't go by legends, by traditions, by scripture, don't even go by logical conjecture, as we've sort of mentioned before, don't go by inference, don't go by analogies, don't go by 
agreement, right? Just because you agree doesn't mean it's correct, right? So you can have mm -hmm. a false agreement. Don't go, don't go about it by probability, because even if you're probabilistically certain about something, it might not be the whole truth. Don't mm -hmm. even go by just because you think it is true, right? Don't mm -hmm. go by any of these things, right? <laughs> don't go by uh, this person who says this per this thing is my teacher, so I should believe it, right? So don't go by any of this stuff. Leaves a huge void, right? So what do we go by then, right? You've practically removed all of the rational notions of going, you know, we like to go by authority, we like to go by what people say, we like to go by extras, we like to go by agreement. We like to... So it says, don't go by any of these things. So what do you mm -hmm. suggest? And so the Buddha says, well, only go by the sort of notion that these qualities are unskillful when you know for sure that certain qualities are unskillful, certain qualities are blameworthy, when certain qualities are criticized by the wise, or mm -hmm. when these qualities, when adopted and carried out, lead to harm and to suffering, then you should abandon them. So he gives a negative approach. He says, like, believe what you want, but if you observe that these beliefs bring harm to yourselves and other people, abandon them. Mm -hmm. Because you don't know what is absolutely true or not. So the most practical and psychological approach is to see what works for you. Does it hurt you? Does it sort of hurt other people, right? That is sort of for the ordinary person, the best measure of whether a belief is a good one or not. So by this point, the Buddha is saying, well, it's impossible for a normal individual who is not sort of at the forefront of science and not the forefront of, you know, experimental physicist to be able to do all these experiments. But what you can do to the best of your ability is to examine, critically analyze whether something is a good belief for you, whether something is a harmful or wholesome or good belief to have. Mm -hmm. right? and, but that is also a very, very difficult thing to do because a lot of times we like to think beliefs are good for ourselves and good <laughs> for other people, but it turns out not to be. He's advising that along with this discussion of certainty, you also have to have a, a lot of willpower and discipline to be able to question your beliefs and to take a critical sort of stance and a, and a more objective stance on one's beliefs, just in case, right, that it harms the very thing that matters most, which is how good your life is. Mm-hmm. Right? Exactly. Yeah, because there, there are fundamental truths, meaning that there are fundamentals about living that affect everyone, right? The closer we can get to what is fundamental about all of our experiences and trying to believe the good there, that ripples out to everything in our life, right? And that's why I think the good is better to focus on than the truth, because the truth, you're just stuck in this cycle. You're just stuck in this never-ending cycle of trying to prove yourself or prove this or disprove that. Whereas the truth is very, or another good is very beneficial to focus on, which is what, um, you know, he's saying there. There's a really beautiful Buddhist temple here, and I've been going out and, and practicing again. It's a Renzai temple. Yeah, there's this sutra, the, probably one of the most famous ones, Makahanya Harimita Shingyo, right? Mm. Have you heard that one? Yeah, and it, this bodhisattva is meditating and the bodhisattva is saying, all things are ku, which is a type of nothingness, right? There's no birth, no death, no purity, no impurity, no increase, no decrease, that everything, everything is just ku, everything is just nothing. I really like that idea. You know, when I was meditating in the Renzai, people, they all stare into the center of the room, which I think is very uncomfortable. I like staring at a wall when I meditate, but there we are staring and I was practicing my um, shamatha, you know, the ability to just single-mindedly focus. I was staring at this little design mm -hmm. on uh, one of the mats there. You know, everything just falls apart when you sit and stare at it. Or you, your vision starts blurring or the floor starts breathing and moving and the, the pattern starts moving. And you can see how the Buddhist came up with it. It's like, yeah, like everything just falls apart when you sit and stare at it same when you analyze the truth everything just falls apart it seems like everything in this reality if you just focus on it it falls apart 
right? Um, that everything truly is nothing. I don't know. You have you have a deeper understanding of that. What do you what do you think? Yeah, I mean, what's interesting is that the notion of sort of ku or is, is not really nothing but emptiness, as in mm -hmm. it's not like it's not taking the nihilistic approach where nothing exists, right? Because that's clearly not the case. <laughs> Otherwise, where would all this come from? But it's saying that things exist, but not as the way as we might think it does, right? Which mm -hmm. is a far more sort of acceptable or far more logical way of approaching it. Because if you were mm -hmm. to tell people nothing exists, and you know, people will de definitely not be on board, but it's, you know, the Buddhists aren't idiots. They realize that something definitely exists, but mm -hmm. not in the way that we experience and think it does, right? So it's recognizing mm -hmm. the fact that whatever we think is the case is based on a very heavily biased mechanism of sort of yeah. our senses and our means of reasoning and our own versions of what is rational, our versions of what is logical. And so they sort of take the approach, well, if I really want to get as close to how things are as possible, I should really try my hardest to not base my beliefs on the assumptions that my senses are accurate, on the assumption that my version of what is reasonable, rational is the right one or my version of what is sort of logical or empirically justified is the right one. Rather, I should just sort of sit and sort of observe and then take away from what works for my life, which is why, you know, they say that meditation is, doesn't always have to occur when sitting, right? Some people genuinely mm -hmm. have a hard time sitting, so they recommend that you could sort of stand, walk, there's walking meditation, breathing. Because there's a lot of different types of meditation. And that fundamentally mm -hmm. proves a principle that it's never going to be the case that one size fits all, that your life is definitely going to be better if you do this in a very particular manner. It has mm -hmm. to be from this form of experimentation where you try things out and you see what works best for you and your life. And hopefully that would expand towards working best for other people in your life as well. Because sometimes, you know, you may have to make a compromise. What's best for you might not be best for everyone, but you can find sort of a happy middle ground. What is so, what is good for you is also good for everyone as well. <laughs> that one might be quite a nice way. There is that sort of mistake in believing that the Buddha was some sort of metaphysician, that he was some sort of taught the truth, where he was quite honest in, in even in the very beginning that the truth is unteachable, right? It's, you can only experience a version of the truth and anything that I will say or can sort of verbalize is always going to be some distortion of how things really are. So mm -hmm. the next best thing is basically to just be a psychologist, right? Is to mm -hmm. tell you what you need to know or a general framework of how things can work. And then you experiment the finer details, right? So he says, okay, if you want to live a happier life, you should have developed some form of discipline, some form of focus, and then from that focus, you should observe whether certain things work for you should experiment. That's the general habit. Mm -hmm. Of course, the finer details, you have to experiment and see what works for you. One mm -hmm. person's form of discipline, for instance, Japanese love discipline when it comes to like tea making, for instance. <laughs> Whereas, you know, you know in, in the UK, we're a lot more laissez-faire when it comes to tea making. <laughs> tea bagging, hot water, and there's less ceremony and things like that. So different cultures have a different notion of what is considered to be discipline mm -hmm. right but as long as you find something and that works for you that's definitely going to be a good thing um because ultimately comes down to the notion of paying attention mm -hmm. right you, any form of certainty and any form of extracting useful or practical information from the world has to begin with paying attention to it in the first place and the most dangerous thing you can do is not to pay any attention just let things happen Mm -hmm. And you don't take any notice of it, then you just go with whatever it is. There's a lot of um, analogies where the Buddha takes a bit of sand from the ground and he says to his disciples, is there more sand in my hands or is there more sand on the, on the floor? Of course, the disciples are not idiots. They go like, of course, there's more sand on the floor. He's like, exactly. Like what I perceive, right, being an enlightened being is in terms of knowledge of how the world is, is sort of like the amount of sand on the floor. What I teach is the amount of sand in my hand. And the reason for this is because I only teach what is relevant. But there's no mm. point in going into all of the finer details of how mm. the world is like, because then, it, well, for one, that will just be hearsay in the sense that none of the other people will know what he's talking about because they don't have an observation of that sort of thing. 
the mm. other part of it is just not very, very useful, right? At the end of the day, what he's trying to do is trying to get people to live more wholesome, happier lives. It's unclear as to what the fundamental basis of direction when it comes to science, because it's that aspect of scientific direction is left to the individual scientists, right? Certain mm -hmm. scientists take joy in merely trying to discover the truths of the world, right? And they're mm -hmm. not as concerned with, with what the consequences of those truths are. Mm -hmm. They just want to be very good academics. They just want to know how things are as close to the truth as possible. Other scientists are far more aware of the impact of what knowledge has politically on the world. And so there has been a lot more emphasis on scientists also needing to be good communicators of what they're doing. They also have to be very good uh, critical thinkers. They also have to be very good at explaining very, very complicated concepts to people who might not have the scientific background because they understand the impact of what these, what the science can often have on the people. They all, it also means that they have to do a lot of sort of uh, disparaging of sensational news headlines of certain scientific <laughs> discoveries. And they have to explain like, look, right? I can understand why the news would like to portray the information in this way, but in reality is not that, right? It's not the case that this mm -hmm. is what is happening. You know, there was that whole, it was a news article that came out a few years ago about how, for, I think it was in one year we eat the equivalent of microplastics of a credit card or something like that. And a lot mm -hmm. of scientists are kind of like, that is just not true, right? The, the <laughs> article that they referenced within their error boundaries, right? And the mm -hmm. upper error does imply that it's possible mm -hmm. in the upper error that there, it might amount to, but none of the evidence suggests that we're definitely <laughs> taking a credit card amount of microplastics. But of course, as a, you know, as a journalist, you read that and you go like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm taking this part and I'm putting it on the headline. It makes a lot of sense. And so I think there's a lot more discussions about certainty has a lot of benefit in trying to remind people that journalism does not always reflect sort of the facts. And people no can't, can't be reminded of that enough. No. <laughs> that, that, in reality, you know, <laughs> things are far more sophisticated, far more sort of nuanced than sort of a hundred word article makes it out to be. But, no we, but we often forget that, right? We often like, because it's, it's sort of a fun thing, right? You meet up with people over dinner, we like to discuss uh, <laughs> sensationalists. And like, oh, did you hear, right? We're eating um, credit cards of, <laughs> of plastics or, you know, that sort of thing. Let's all worry about it. Let's all get really upset and angry. Yeah, <laughs> so we can argue about this sort of thing. Yeah, I think I'll come back to my, my fear thing. Mm -hmm. You know, once again, fear is shaping most of what we believe. And um, all this kind of tribal thinking, which news you subscribe to, what group you're in. If you really study certainty, you realize it's all just coup, all phenomenon's coup or whatever. Yeah. And um, I don't know, I'll tell you, I'll tell you my, my kind of metaphysical thing is, is evolving um, from my subjective science. Because in my experience, subjective changes have objective outcomes, right? Mm -hmm. If that wasn't true, then what's Buddhism good for, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? Or the placebo um, effect wouldn't work. Or the placebo yeah. effect, right? Subjective. And also, yeah, your subjective experience can have objective outcomes. You can lower your cortisol levels. You can improve the either quality of your, your neuro connections and myelination and things like that. So I think there is something fundamental about consciousness you know, from meditation and my subjective science, I know that ultimately I am an awareness. I'm scared to say consciousness because I don't really understand what it is of some, some stream of reality, right? This, you know, whatever this is, is just a vibrating mess of stuff. So whether this vibrating mess of stuff or a dream vibrating mess of stuff, I'm aware of that, but I sense these things, right? And then I send attention, you mentioned attention, I send attention to those senses. And the word attention comes from 
the Latin atenere, which means a to, to send to. Tenere is like kind of like the stretch. So I can imagine like this goopy ball of awareness mm -hmm. that you stretch out to all these things, right? So through attention, I'm sending all these things out. I perceive patterns, right? When attention meets reality, you're really looking for patterns, right? And these patterns become knowledge. And then I can test this knowledge experimentally and gain an understanding, which is not like knowledge is just you're aware of something, maybe the cause and effect, but an understanding is understanding what's happening between cause and effect, the whole process, right? Mm -hmm. Then I'm able to apply that understanding to different circumstances. And that, that's what I would call wisdom is being able to apply understanding. But then once I've amassed a good amount of wisdom, I can actually be creative, right? And I think that's the ultimate, like real creation. You can kind of mess around and get lucky and discover something, but I wouldn't call that real creativity. Mm -hmm. Real creativity is accumulating so much wisdom that you can make things in the world now. I think that's interesting because uh, now the only thing I really believe in is just my awareness right? The the story of Josh, Josh's life, all that stuff I'm skeptical of. The things that happen in my mind, the things that are happening in physical reality, I'm very skeptical of, but there's always a constant awareness behind everything, you know, through all the different things I'm going through. There is that. And that's the only thing I believe in now. I don't know. What do you, what do you think about that? Yeah. And I, I like this idea of the stretching notion of attention because we, we don't have sort of unlimited attention, no. right? So we have to sort of extend our attention to certain things that we'd like to pay attention to. I remember there's mm -hmm. this sort of, apparently there's five different subjective levels uh, in certain mm -hmm. sort of schools of Buddhism. And I just like to describe that sort of a normal sort of everyday person, they see the world, their subjectivity usually just extends to gain and loss. So what is good for me? What is bad for me? What is pleasurable? What is favorable? What is this or what is pleasurable? The gods see things as what is skillful and what is unskillful. So mm -hmm. the difference is that one is long-term and one is short-term. So they don't just take pleasure in short-term benefits, but they also like to take, see things a little bit more far-sighted and see, oh, maybe I might suffer a little bit now, but if I do this and I train myself, I can gain larger amounts of pleasure in the future. So the gods apparently have this sort of viewpoint. Then sort of the wise uh, see things as cycles, as patterns, where they start to see that, oh, you know, even if I try really hard to do good things, right, it's always an up and down thing. I try really, really hard for to, to do a lot of good, but if I don't fundamentally understand something about the world, I'm still being bound to good and bad. Right, this very mm -hmm. limited view of the world, and so they see things as as patterns, as cycles, more than just good and bad. Um, mm -hmm. And then, you know, the even wiser sort of practitioners start to see things as conditions. So they don't just see things as one to one cause and effect, but they start to realize that actually the world is very very complicated, and a lot of things have to work together in order to make things happen. So now mm -hmm. they're really really picking out the conditional certain qualities of what makes happen. So for instance, the difference would be Newtonian mechanics operates in a very ideal, right, world where there's no like 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 you know, I remember doing sort of my physics examinations in high school where we always love to ignore resistance because that is very, very <laughs> annoying to account for. But of course in the real world, resistance is everywhere. So Newtonian mechanics and cause and effect is a very, very limited and ideal view of the world conditional arising and that view of the world is now taking into sort of the smaller things, right? If you have to send a rocket into space, it's not good enough that you just have a grasp on Newtonian mechanics. You also have to do a lot of real world. You have to account for a lot of the things in the real world that might affect how your spaceship launches. So even all the math and physics might check out, right? We've seen a lot of tests of rockets going catastrophically wrong because there's so much in the real world that you have to account for. And then the final sort of subjective view, which is what they call the Buddha's subjective view or the God's eye view, if you'd like, is compassion. So once you have a grasp of how all of the intricacies of cause and effect and conditions work, the only thing that is left is whether 
knowing these and how to apply this knowledge to help other people, right? To mm -hmm. try and find a way to alleviate suffering or to bring people sort of joy. And so you've got sort of these five different sort of subjective points of view. So five different ways of using your attention uh, to approach sort of the world. And so, you know, to, to make it correspond to the modern world, you have sort of, if you like, normal individuals who don't really pay attention to anything, right? Who will just pay attention to what is pleasurable, what's not. And then you have uh, people who are more sort of, you know, entrepreneurs, businessmen who think things, <laughs> you know, more sort of, uh, you know, further down the line. And then you've got sort of scientists who like to think about how the rules work. So the theoretical science, they've got the experimental physicists who try to apply the science to the world. And then you've got sort of people who say, okay, I want to do more than that. I want to see how I can use this knowledge to bring some good into the world, mm -hmm. right? I want, I, yes, it's true that we could do a lot of stuff with science, but what is the things that I should sort of dedicate this knowledge to, to help in some way? <laughs> I don't want to just send billionaires into space. I want to actually <laughs> use my resources for something more worthwhile, right? And so there's different ways of using uh, that particular bit of knowledge. I think you definitely are right in saying that the only thing that we have absolute certainty over of is that we are something that possesses awareness mm -hmm. of things. As for mm -hmm. what we are or what that something <laughs> no is <idea. laughs> or what we are experiencing <laughs> is highly suspect and it's highly up <laughs> no to interpretation. Idea. But we do have, we know that the light is switched on somewhere. We do know that we, some light is going through sort of the, the, the film, right? We know that mm -hmm. there's something happening that we, that there is a consciousness or, or an awareness of things happening. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's very, very unclear as to what else there is. For certain Buddhists, they think that that is sort of good enough, right? The conscious only, consciousness mm -hmm. only um school of buddhists believe that that is precisely it that we there is only this awareness and nothing else <laughs> this <laughs> is like a cosmic universal illusion that is happening and right. all of this is you know this is what it, what is happening of course that is a very radical uh view but it, it's epistemologically sort of conservative to like the nth degree saying that okay the only thing that we are saying that therefore this is it this is all we got <laughs> um yeah i'd like to sort of come to an end on this sort of quote that i remember from the first uh men in black film me and my <laughs> film references of course men in black. <laughs> yeah where when he, when tommy lee jones sort of character was sort of recruiting uh, Will Smith's character, and he sort of says, well, a thousand years ago, everybody knew that the Earth was the center of the universe, right? 500 years ago, people knew the Earth was flat, right? 15 minutes ago, you knew that we humans were alone on this planet, right? But imagine what you'll know tomorrow, right? There's this mm. always this, this uncertainty, this possibility that everything we think is rational or logical or true can be completely turned on its head very, very soon. Perhaps, although there, I did read something the other day where a lot of scientists are now proclaiming that we're nearly at the end of science. I don't believe that. <laughs> <laughs> that I don't believe have, that for a second. At least they seem to think that all the big discoveries have been made, that it's just fine-tuning this one. But a lot of people disagree. It's unclear as to it. I, I think, I think Kenny would definitely disagree. <laughs> Kenny's very skeptical of scientists. Yeah. yeah, I mean, okay. What if our universe is nested inside of another universe with a mm -hmm. whole different type of physics? What if the physics we can observe from Earth is different from the physics on the other side of the universe? Mm -hmm. How do we know that each galaxy doesn't have its own physics? You know, uh, I don't believe any of that statement, but that's good that they feel that way. That probably helps them sleep at night. And <laughs> we, we already know of one instance where the laws of physics don't quite work the way we like. Okay. And that is like the extremities of the black hole. Right? Mm -hmm. It's one of those cases where our, like we know that our model of how the world works isn't true. Mm -hmm. One, because the big stuff doesn't work with the small stuff. So we know that there's something wrong there. 
And when mm-hmm. it comes to black holes, like none of it works in there. <laughs> it all breaks down. None yeah. of the sort of mathematics checks out. And so we have to come. So we know that there's definitely more room. And it's a definite possibility that as far as our model of physics goes, we're nowhere mm-hmm. near a complete, like what people are called the theory of everything. Right, mm-hmm. one unifying theory of how everything works. I don't know. Maybe we should end it now. Maybe yeah. we should. <laughs> sure. Yeah, because this is, I could keep going on and on about yeah. this, but there you go, listener. Go have your existential crisis curled under your blankets as you deal with the massive amount of uncertainty in your life. You're welcome. Welcome to philosophy. <laughs> uh, we all went through it. Ultimately, what we come to, uh, just try not to be a dick, try to be a good person and, and believe what's most beneficial for you and others. Yeah, thank you for listening. Be sure to like, subscribe, share all the other crap everyone is telling you to do all the time. If you'd like to study with me, go to greenatelier.art. And thank you to everyone who's supporting us on Patreon. And remember to be critically creative.